Hi, I'm Leah Lane, an award-winning travel writer and author of Places I Remember, Tales, Truths, Delights from 100 Countries. On this podcast, we share conversations with travelers about fascinating destinations and memorable experiences around the world. Have you ever dreamed of sailing the world on a private yacht or flying in a private jet from country to country, wherever and whenever you wanted to go? Or how about traveling the world independently as a backpacker for months and years at a time from continent to continent? Our guest on this episode did all of these things and will be sharing her extraordinary memories. Annabella George, born in Lisbon, Portugal and brought up in California, has had a passion for travel since she was a child, and she's traveled to over 75 countries. Welcome, Annabella, to Places I Remember. Well, thank you for having me. We'll start with graduating from university. Your wanderlust compelled you to explore the world as a crew member in the private yachting industry. How did that start? I graduated from college and my roommate and I decided to go to the U.S. Virgin Islands to St. Thomas on vacation. And that is that was my introduction to the yachting industry. Coming from the Central Valley of California, I had no idea that this world existed out there, and I was fascinated. I really wanted to, number one, learn how to sail, and number two, learn how to dive. Well, that's (laughs) one way to do it from a yacht. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So I became determined to get on one of these sailing yachts and learn how to sail. The diving didn't quite work out. I couldn't equalize the pressure in my ears. But I resigned myself to snorkeling, which I still absolutely love. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, snorkeling is one of the best things you could possibly do when you travel. I've done it all over the world as well. It's wonderful. Let me just ask you, I watch a show called Below Deck, which many people watch. (laughs) And I see the way the yachties talk about the guests and so forth and the way it is, you know, with relationships. Tell me what it's like to be a yachty. Well, this so this was, you know, quite a long time ago. So things were a lot different. A lot of people didn't people didn't know about yachting back then. But there are some similarities, I have to say. And I worked both in sailing and motor yachts. There are similarities, the drama that goes on. And as a matter of fact, it's really it was really tough to find like the perfect yacht to work on because you want you know, you want a great yacht, a great captain, a great itinerary, great crew. And to have all those elements coming together was not easy. I think I finally got that on my last boat that I worked on. And we called them boats. We didn't go around saying yachts. We just called them boats back then. How, how big was the boat? Okay, so I worked, I initially worked on sailing yachts that were approximately 65 feet. And were the, uh, these owned by private people or were they chartered by people? They were owned by private people who allowed them to be, who offered them. Um, so you had charter. different guests coming. Uh, you had different guests on yeah. board. So th- those were my the sailing yacht days. Then I, I moved on to motor yachts, which was different. And there were more crew and more drama with, uh, yes, there were relationships on board and there were strange, strange guest stories. Such as one, what would be one that you remember? We were in Nantucket once waiting for a charter guest and his family. He was a owner of a major football team and we waited 
and waited. And for three days, we were waiting in Nantucket for this gentleman and his family to arrive. Can you imagine you're renting a boat for chartering a boat for thousands of dollars and you're not there? Did he ever come? (laughs) He finally did show up and he was, it was him and his very young wife, who was the same age as his daughters and no judgment. Well, maybe a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, it's his his trip to enjoy, right? Exactly, exactly. But he had this peculiarity in that he did not like any noise whatsoever, no noise, every little noise offended him. And we, the crew, have to get up earlier than the guests, of course, to prepare breakfast and you know wash the boat, do all of the things that crew members on, um, on yachts do. And all of that work, it is a lot of work. It's very demanding physically, emotionally, mentally, in every way, and you get very little sleep. But this gentleman did not want us doing anything. And it progressed like each day we started doing less and less. And we had to wait until they woke up to be able to do our chores. Wow. (laughs) They guessed from hell. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And then there was a huge drama between between the wife and the daughter. And this sounds like an episode of of Below Deck. It is. (laughs) Well, that's enough. (laughs) I'm sure many of them were not as memorable and, and were good. On one of your cruises, you went from Newport to the Caribbean in December. What was that one like? Oh, that was cold. <laughs> the owners were refurbishing the aft cabin, and it ha- there had been a lot of delays, and we had tried departing week earlier and ran into some really bad weather and had some maintenance issues. We had to return to um, to Newport to get that fixed. So it ended up that we didn't leave until like the second week of December or so, which was really cold. There was ice on deck. We um, had to wear the little heating things that go into your boots and your and your hands because it was so cold and the weather was really bad. We had we saw 20 foot swells. Ooh. And I tell Sounds you like Antarctica. <laughs> when we were in the trough, the swells looked like mountains around us. It was spectacular. <laughs> in a way. It was spectacular, uh, scary, but you didn't have time to be scared. You were a crew member. You were trained for that. I, I think everyone got sick. And I never believe anyone who doesn't who says they never get sick because I've seen the best of them get sick. Oh, in that kind of weather, yes. Now, you also mentioned about the horse latitudes. What are the horse latitudes? And what's that like to be swimming in the middle of the Atlantic with thousands of feet of water below you? We were south of Bermuda. And the water was dead calm, dead calm. So we all decided to go swimming, just jump in the middle of the Atlantic. And of course, one person staying on board because we had heard horror stories of, you know, everybody going overboard. That movie, I I remember where people were left and they were stuck in the middle of the ocean. Right. And so one person stayed on board. It was just wild to think that there were thousands of feet under us as we were swimming. The other cool thing about the horse latitudes were that at night when we were on watch, you couldn't distinguish the sky from the sea. You could not see a horizon, but it was spectacularly beautiful. 
and something I'll always remember. Yeah, those are the memories, the, the scenic things like the Northern Lights. Now, how about the Galapagos? You went there. That's one of the places everybody wants to go. What was that like to go on a, a yacht? That was amazing. That was on the same boat. We did the charter season in the Caribbean, and then we hired two uh, crew members to accompany us for the passage to the Panama Canal, where we picked up our boss, his wife, daughter, and nanny. So we had the two crew members and them. So we were actually on an expedition. Our boss had arranged for a lab in Maine where he had a home to take water samples in the Galapagos. And we ended up hiring uh, an Australian gentleman that we had taken on as crew to take uh, the water samples because he was uh, actually a marine biologist. So we had all these people on this small boat. This was a 52-foot sailing yacht. (laughs) So So not the not the biggest. So we sailed to the Galapagos and on the way to the Galapagos, we lost our refrigeration. We had to throw all of the perishables away. And I, who had been hired as the chef cook on board, I had just learned how to cook. I had like a repertoire of like 10 different meals that I could actually cook. (laughs) And now I was so stressed out because I was going to have to reprovision the boat in Puerto Arroyo, I believe it, it was yeah. uh, called in Santa Cruz Island, and where there's like there was meat hanging from uh, the stalls and so forth. Um, I look back at some of these things and I think, how did I manage to do that? Yeah, <laughs> we I- all do that. <laughs> how did I do that? Well, there was always peanut butter and jelly, but I guess that wouldn't pass, right? <laughs> They want real meat. What was wonderful about it is because we were on an actual expedition, we were able to cruise on our own boat around the islands, which most couldn't do. And we had a naturalist on board. And I, as crew member, was very grateful that the owners allowed us to go on most of the excursions. But we went, you know, basically all the way around the main islands. Uh, I remember climbing up uh, St. Mark Bartholomew and taking uh, just the magnificent, you know, beautiful landscape. And it it was a wondrous uh, trip of a lifetime, really. One of the things I always tell people if they're going to the Galapagos, try to get on the smallest boat you can because you don't want to get on with a lot of people because the animals may not be quite as friendly or or it's just a different feeling. And I was with uh, seven people. I was very lucky, but that's you know, funny. some boats that some boats are 80 people. Yeah. And I think if I were going to go, I'd try real hard to get to get as few as possible for that particular I completely, trip. I completely agree with you. Also, I'm an animal lover and I would hate the idea of scaring the animals with so many people around, you know, wonderful to see the blue-footed boobies. And we had, you know, our little small group, you know, you had the males and the females. And I can't remember one of them honked and the other one whistled or something. They danced. <laughs> they do dance too, like Fred and, and danced. <laughs> yes, yes. No, it was, oh, the, the animals were spectacular. You also sailed across the Atlantic twice. You went to the Azores from Bermuda and Antigua and you sailed through islands with a full moon, you told me, listening to Pink Floyd. <laughs> and there were jellyfish floating all around you, huge numbers of them, and dolphins swimming towards you. It sounds delightful. 
But what about motor yachting? That, that's a little different. What Tell us a story about your experiences there. What's the difference, do you feel, motor yachting to sailing? Sailing, you're out there with the elements and you are embracing nature and you're so much closer to literally and figuratively the sea. And uh, that's what I really loved about it. On motor yachts, it's a completely different feeling. I mean, you're still you're still out there with the elements if you're working on deck and so forth. But it's more of like a, you know, hotel feeling. And as far as being a crew member, when you're a crew member on sailing yacht, you wear all different hats. And when you're a crew member on a motor yacht, those of you who watch Below Deck know there's different departments and you're pretty much stuck with your role. However, I really loved being on deck and the captains with whom I worked knew that and knew that I was capable and gave me a lot of opportunities to work on deck, which I really appreciated. Well, it sounds fantastic. But later, you went from boating to backpacking all over the world. Gave me some notes about some of the things you did. I'll just go over a few of them. You you went from Ecuador to Peru. You sat on the top of a train in Ecuador. You drove. How long were you on the top of the train? Was it moving? It was like all day. It oh was, my! Uh, yeah, we went from Guayaquil to Alausi and then Baños. And well, wasn't that dangerous? Just, just sitting on the top of the train. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> That's what all, we uh, when I was uh, backpacking through South America and many other places. It was on a, a budget, so I would go from these you know, five-star yachts to being on a quintessential Lonely Planet backpacker's budget, shoestring budget. Well, you're a real traveler. That's what a real traveler can do. Just adapt. (laughs) Exactly. You have to be very adaptable. And so I had met these other uh, friends staying in Quito, Ecuador, and we decided to take this trip on steam trains. And that's what the locals were doing. They would sit. I mean, they were these were crowded trains, of course, and people would sit on top. And we thought, that's cool. You know, we want to do that. And so we we sat on top and all these kids joined us and these shoeshine boys. And and we had a wonderful time with them. And kind of at the end, they were like all sleeping, like on our laps and and cuddling (laughs) them. And and even though I was wearing Tevas, I had them shine my shoes anyway. Uh (laughs) <laughs> I just think about ducking under the tunnel. That That's the thing that would scare me. Yeah, <laughs> you have to keep it, your eyes that, ahead, right? Uh, that was very concerning. Yep. Yeah. We, we got, you know, we got down when we were full of soot when we got to our destination. I would imagine. <laughs> and when we got to our destination, the hotel didn't have, wa- the water wasn't working. So. Oh my goodness. This is, this is the opposite of the five-star yacht. Exactly. Well, I, well, wait, in Brazil, in Rio, you were, there was an attempted robbery with four men and what did you do to to save them off? Okay, so in Brazil, in Rio, they had these buses. I don't know if it's still the same, but they had these buses where you enter through the back and there's a turnstile that you go through. Now, I wasn't carrying much cash with me. I had a, a money belt and then I had like a, a little pocket with money. You know, those little traveler check holders that we used to have? I, uh-huh. had, some, I had some notes in there in my pocket. Well, there were four men behind me and they were sounding really impatient and stuff. And 
they thought I was going to be passing the turnstile when they pickpocketed me. And I wasn't, I was mid turnstile. So I was able to go back and this is probably not the best idea, but I went and fought for my money (laughs) and I, and I, I like, I grabbed my little pocket thing and there was money like flying everywhere and he was gathering money. I was gathering money. Now there's four men around. And at one point, one of them started coming towards me and I kicked him with my flat foot where the sun don't shine, right? Where it counts. And it worked. Okay. (laughs) Well, you're gutsy. I would say you're ballsy. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. But anyway, you got past that one. You also, uh, you had other experiences there. You went to Southeast Asia, you swam with whale sharks and whales, and you went on to Mexico, Belize, and Guatemala, and then to Nepal and India. I mean, you you really had seen the world by then, but how did you get into private aviation to become a flight attendant for a wealthy family? Just how did that happen? Well, it was kind of a natural progression from the private yachting. I had heard of other people who had transitioned from private yachting to private aviation, and uh, not many, but there were a few, and it intrigued me because, hey, I could get there faster. I've always loved flying, and it was something that would combine my three major interests of travel, flying, and food and wine. What happened was I was in a transition period. I happened to meet a woman who worked for the same family of one of the motor yachts that I had worked for. And we ended up meeting and she interviewed me. And I was basically immediately hired because she's like, if you can work for this family, uh, you can work on this airplane. And I'll teach you how. And she was my mentor. And uh, And what did you have to do? What was the difference between being a flight attendant on a private jet and being a commercial flight attendant. Well, thank you for asking that because there is such a major difference. Being a flight attendant on, most of us know what a flight attendant does on commercial jets, but a flight attendant on a a private jet is more like a manager. I don't like using that word because it's more, you're you're a manager of the interior of the airplane and you do everything from provisioning to catering to serving to whatever the boss wants you to do you wear many different hats you go shopping when they're off the airplane and you're waiting for them if there's an emergency of course you have to handle the emergency i went to training at the gulfstream facility on several occasions were there on- any emergencies while you were flying we were just uh, taking off from Doha, Qatar, and uh, at about 30,000 feet when the front left windshield of the cockpit cracked. Hmm. And fortunately, well, I don't know, fortunately, but we had had a similar situation just a few months back. And I had learned, not that it's not a big deal, but there's actually two windshields. So we weren't going to decompress at that particular time. However, all regulations. Yeah, exactly. All regulations are that you must land and get that fixed ASAP, of course. So one of the things is when you fly private, you can go whenever you want, wherever you want. So I'm sure you went you went all over the place at a moment's notice, I would gather. And that was probably challenging for you, but very exciting. So you got to do wonderful things, I hope, uh, I while did. the family was, yes. 
I did. We did get to do wonderful things. We accompanied we the, the flight attendants, and there were two of us that swapped, accompanied the airplane for two weeks out of the month. So not exactly two weeks. It depended on what the, the logistical situation was. Sometimes we flew to meet the airplane, commuted, I guess, to meet the airplane. You stayed for a month in Tahiti, you you told me. What what was that like? Yes. Uh, So the boss had a yacht, a fetch. Oh, my goodness. Back to yachting. Yeah. The boss had a yacht. And so (laughs) we used to take his family to meet up with the yacht. They were really into diving. We actually dropped them off in the Marquesas and then repositioned to Tahiti. And they made it to Tahiti. And then they were going in and out of Tahiti to the different islands. And while they were in Tahiti, we would run errands for them and wore different hats. And we also had a lot of fun while we were there. I would, I would guess you did something called muck diving in Indonesia. What is muck diving? M-U-C-K, muck. <laughs> right, right. Muck, di- muck diving. And unfortunately, I couldn't dive myself, but I did accompany the divers. And uh, muck diving is there are these fish at the bottom of the sea that actually like they can walk it's the the strangest thing but it was really interesting we had actually a national geographic photographer there where we were staying so you also had an interesting and very dangerous situation in papua new guinea while the family was diving off one of the islands you got an emergency call that the dive master was suffering from the bends and you needed to take him to Australia to the nearest decompression chamber. Did you accomplish that? We did. We got the call at night, but we could not land on the island at nighttime. So we had to wait till early in the morning to fly out to this place. And we we got the dive master and we flew at a low altitude to Townsville, Australia. Um, and so he he ended up being okay. But yeah, those are the kind of situations that we ran t- into once in a while. Now, I'm sure there were celebrities aboard. Or one that interested me was a former president, George H.W. Bush and his wife, Barbara. Can you tell us something about traveling with them? They were just the most gracious people. They were so wonderful. And of course, they came with all of their secret service, the secret service kind of sat in the back. And it was only me, I mean, taking care of all of these people. But they were gracious and, you know, very complimentary of uh, the service and the food that was offered. Uh, Barbara, Mrs. Barbara Bush was so cute. One time we landed in the Bahamas and there was a red carpet and all these people waiting for them. And she was the last to leave the airplane. And she looks at me and she says, do I look okay? <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you look fantastic. Well, that's good. <laughs> Her humility was so yeah. uh, heartwarming. <laughs> nice, nice to hear that. I know you went to St. Petersburg, Russia, and had a request for a lot of caviar. What did the taxi driver think when you when you came back with all the caviar? Oh my gosh, yeah. So that was something. I and I got this request as as it happened many times at the last minute the night before like at one o'clock in the morning so we had to arrange it in the morning for this taxi driver to take me to get this all this caviar when we got back he says to me I have to ask you a question is this for President Putin 
<laughs> oh my. You go from one type of president to another. Okay. Exactly. Oh, yes, well, that's a good segue. <laughs> I think we'll end on that one. But okay, the name of the podcast, Annabella, is Places I Remember. So please share with us one more special memory of your world travels. One of my most special memories is being at Machu Picchu with my husband, Ashton. We did watch sunrise from Machu Picchu, and that's one of my most memorable moments. Very interesting. I've had at least three guests who have mentioned Machu Picchu as a memorable experience. So yes, I hope everyone gets to do that. It's a wonderful thing to do a sunrise, exactly, before the crowds. Yes. And as a photographer, photographing it at the different times as the light was changing was just spectacular. We actually waited for a couple hours and I just kept photographing and I'll never forget that moment. Well, I hope you write a book with photos because your stories are amazing and there are many more of them. And I think your photos are probably amazing too. So we will look for that in the future. But meanwhile, may you keep traveling and finding new adventures for yourself and for others, sharing your passion for the world. And may we all follow your lead in our own ways and someday maybe fly private. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Same here. (laughs) Thanks for listening to our award-winning podcast. We've recorded over 100 episodes of Places I Remember. So follow us on any podcast app. And new monthly episodes are also on YouTube with gorgeous video. My book, Places I Remember, is available in print and Kindle, and I read the audio version. Follow my travel writing at Forbes.com. Contact me at the links in the show notes or on my website, PlacesIRememberLealane.com, and keep making your own travel memories.